Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, this is Chris Safarova. Welcome to another episode of the Strategy Skills Podcast. Before we start today's interview, I have a gift for you. If you want to strengthen your strategy skills, get the overall approach using well-managed strategy studies, free download. You can get it by going to firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. So it is F-I-R-M-S consulting.com forward slash overall approach. And our guest today is Atif Rafik. Atif rose through the ranks at Amazon and Yahoo, was the first chief digital officer in the history of the Fortune 500, a pioneering role he held at McDonald's. And he also rose to the president level in the Fortune 300. Welcome, Atif. So great to have you with us. Chris, it's a real pleasure to join you. Thanks for having me. Atif, so to set the stage, could you maybe tell us about your shift from working in Silicon Valley to the Fortune 500 and how you brought the skills to your new roles? Sure. Well, uh, the origin story for this transition is uh, takes us back about 10 years ago. So I'm a general manager of a business unit at Amazon, and I've pretty much worked in Silicon Valley companies up to that point my entire career. So I didn't imagine working you know, essentially for a non-tech company. But 2013 is also the year that the famous uh, venture capitalist Mark Andreessen coined the phrase software is eating the world. And it sort of dawned on, you know, people who were early to see it that every industry would be reshaped by technology in terms of customer experience, business model, or even, you know, a lot more than that. And one of those, you know, visionary people was Don Thompson, currently at the time the CEO of McDonald's, and he decided he needed to bring in somebody, you know, from Silicon Valley who understood scale and had, you know, a lot of uh, innovative capacity. So he said, I'm pretty, I need to hire someone from Google or Amazon. And I was fortunate enough to be the person. And so I uh, joined McDonald's at that time, a 60 year old organization, uh, youngest person ever in their top 10 uh, leadership roles and in, in that executive team. And, um, you know, I was writing a cultural fault line because I'm coming in from Silicon Valley into a, a more of a traditional company. So I learned a lot in that process in terms of getting how to get an elephant to dance. Uh, it's a lot more than coming up with the strategy. It's how to make the strategy actionable. And quite frankly, you know, I made some mistakes. I learned along the way. We got great results. But it took me about 10 years from that point to really build the repertoire of, of um you know, how you go about innovating at scale or, you know, whether you're a young company, but certainly at a, at a big company that at addressing that complexity. So that's sort of the, the entree into uh, kind of my transition. What surprised you about going through the interview process with McDonald's? Anything that stood out for you that you did not expect? Well, I think um, that's a great question. I mean, a lot of it, I think, um, was not you know, nuts and bolts, you know, uh, you know, logic and sort of like uh, kind of questioning, you know, and, and trying to get a sense for your intellect. I think they trusted that uh, if you had the experience and risen through the ranks at a place like Google or Amazon that you probably had, you know, that intellectual ability. I think it was more of the fit around the culture, you know, and basically, you know, are you somebody who can... Um, you know, work with others and collaborate. How do you make other people feel about about uh, your work and your ideas? And and that's that was very important at McDonald's for good reasons, right? Because it's a big organization. You need to be, be a pretty good listener and understand where other people are coming from while still leading. So, yeah, that was, um, you know, that, that was maybe a little bit surprising, but it, it made a lot of sense as I reflect back on it. And what was like to go through this adjustment process? Because it is a completely different space with a very different culture as well. 
Sure. I mean, um, it was definitely a cultural adjustment. You know, um, I mean, at that time, McDonald's had uh, essentially flat lines, so there was no sales uh, growth. And, and that's really not something the company is accustomed to. It's sort of always growing um, despite its scale. And so it badly needed new ideas or a new sort of strategic pillar around which to fuel you know, the next decade of growth. And certainly digitization was not the only thing on the agenda, but it was absolutely one of the top two or maybe three possibilities. So you're coming in with a lot of heightened expectations um, and, you know, you need to uh, activate the organization towards a vision. And so what I started with there was to basically speak in familiar terms. So I didn't speak about technology or digitization as much as I did about convenience, because convenience is sort of an attribute of, you know, getting your food that McDonald's has owned, in fact, pioneered and originated a lot of things like the drive through and so, you know, having a call to action where, you know, we've owned it and how can we continue to own it for the next, you know, generation of, of customers and customer experience, that was the, the objective and the mission. And then bringing that to life through, you know, new ways to use McDonald's, obviously fueled by digitization, you know, that began to resonate with people where like, okay, we understand it in familiar terms, we're reconnecting and reimagining our heritage for for the next you know 10 to 20 years and people really took to that so i think one of the key things to getting traction is basically um you know reconnecting with the heritage and speaking in familiar terms so people understand it and are motivated by it as opposed to you know speaking in a lot of lingo and and language that maybe only a few people understand because you need to activate you know enough of the collective intelligence of the organization it's hard enough to make ideas real um, if people don't understand it or believe in it, it's going to be a struggle to actually translate those ideas into action. So that was one of my key sort of takeaways and, and my approach to to getting McDonald's thinking bigger and motivated to go after digitization. If we think of McDonald's being about three things, taste, value, and convenience, and then your role, you were positioned to influence the convenience piece, as you mentioned, and reimagine what it looks like especially going forward into the future and with all the technology that is coming, becoming available. How you were able to create new customer experiences around that? Well, I mean, uh, coming up with the use cases was not, um, you know, quite frankly, not the hard part because, you know, you can easily imagine people um, using McDonald's in new ways. We refer to these as service models. So, uh, up to the point in which I arrived, there were really only three ways people use McDonald's, which worked really well for 60 years and created $100 billion of revenue every year, so that's not so bad. But those were essentially the drive-through or walking in, standing on a line, uh, and after you give your order, getting a tray to, and sitting down or getting a bag and leaving. And those were the three ways you use McDonald's. It wasn't that hard to imagine you know, three new ways to use McDonald's. For example, no line, just the... Uh, a very intuitive, you know, customer-oriented kiosk where people could take their time and you know, not only make it more convenient, but they could also customize you know, what they wanted. And then they would take a seat and the tray would come to them. So that was one service model. It was called table service. You know, a second one was you know, tapping on your phone and uh, just looking at a screen. When your order number is ready, you go pick up your bag and you head out. So you also skip the line. Um, and that was a you know an order mobile order and pay solution. Then uh, things like the curbside, where you kind of pull into a parking spot, and you know when you check in, the, the order comes out to you, so you skip the drive through. So things like that. And then on top of that, delivery. You know these were sort of the the sort of obvious sort of like potential way new ways to use McDonald's. But there's a lot of complexity in making these come to life in terms of customer experience, operations, and otherwise. And so. That's really what you spent your time doing. But, you know, as you as you know well, you know, the use cases are just one thing. The technology stack may or may not be there. And then you need to um, deal with legacy technology or build new technology. Uh, on top of that, you need to make it real uh, operationally. So you need to train crew and you need to change the look and feel of restaurants. Uh, you need to outfit restaurants with new technology as a franchisee model. 
you know, you need to get franchisees on board that they're willing to participate in at least funding a part of that and that there's going to be a good payout. So it's a very massive, complex endeavor uh, on any scale, but certainly McDonald's being in over 90 countries and uh, serving, you know, hundreds of millions of customers a year. Um, that was that was really a lot of a lot of work and a lot of uh, effort behind that by a lot of different people to pull it off. And after McDonald's, you held C-suite roles at Volvo and MGM Resorts. Incredible career. If you're looking back during that transition from tech companies and going into Fortune 500, what do you wish you knew? Well, um, I mean, I guess the you know the common denominator here is you have organizations where there is good talent. Um, but that being said, you know, when an organization has been around for a long time, it gets used to doing more of the same thing a little bit better each year. So, of course, that's the definition of incrementalism. And um, if you want to reverse incrementalism, you know, you have to sort of sort of uh, put, put in place a different system, a different mindset. And it starts by uh, communicating more clearly. So I guess I, well, the thing I wish I knew was. I knew how innovation works and how to innovate at scale. And, and I had been proven in that area, communicating it as, as, as sort of a method in a system is a different thing. If you know how to do something, then, you know, when you're involved, you know, you start working that way and you do pass on how it works and people learn by doing and seeing it in action. That's great. But a, a way to make scale, make that scale faster is by, for example, explaining it or documenting it or communicating it. Uh, but when you're a doer, you know, sometimes you don't have the time to step back and document, you know, how, how it works and what it means to teams. And so even something like um, not telling teams what you want, but really asking them questions so they, they think um more critically about things and they actually come up with the recommendations and then you help fine-tune them you know that's that's a shift in mindset and that's more akin to my leadership style if i could explain that you know uh in the beginning you know across this 10-year journey that would have you know been better of course i did get to that point but it took me a few years to build up you know the the sort of the best practices around that and that is such a common challenge as well because we only have 24 hours in a day and there's so much pressure there's just you generally just don't have enough time to document you have to be really good at time management so when did you realize that your work with teams could be actually shaped into a method that you can document and share and make work much more effective well it's it's sort of become my life mission about two years ago after this 10-year run in the c-suite of these big companies um, where I said, okay, rather than helping one company at a time, I'm going to scale what I know by essentially uh, distilling it down to a system and a method and even a set of workflows so any team in any company in any industry can take advantage of. So that's what I kind of put my mind to about two years ago. And I started a couple of projects uh, three, four months ago, my book, Decision Sprint. Um, you know, uh, launched and that's sort of the the key body of content that sort of brings it all together. But certainly during some of these experiences I had, I started to shift my approach from coming up with the, you know, the vision and really just sort of move to that higher level role of, you know, I pretty much will hire, you know, <clears throat> senior vice presidents and, and VPs and other C-level people. And I will trust them to come up with the vision. And I'll, I will, I move to a role of calibration where I just tried to raise the bar on their ideas, which essentially meant, you know, I, I pretty much trust them in terms of that their ideas are in the right direction, but I'm going to help them make their ideas more bulletproof. I'm going to poke holes, but in a constructive way to make their ideas stronger, help them see those gaps and fill those gaps. And then, once they go through that process with me, you know, which could be a little bit like a root canal, but, <laughs> you know, 
with the right intention. They come out the other side with really strong ideas and they get a lot of head nods. The organization is very aligned. And then, you know, I can put them in a position to go execute on a, a really sound idea. And uh, I found that to be sort of kind of like if you are the head coach of an NBA team and you have three superstars, you know, you have you have Kyrie Irving, you have KD, and, and maybe you have um, James Harden or, you know, if people are into basketball, for example. But, you know, you, you can begin to hire superstars and help them still want to play for the team and want to step up and are motivated to to kind of perform and grow. And so I think that is the next wave of what leadership is all about is this calibration of high performers and helping them, you know, raise the bar and do even better. Let's unpack your method. What are some key components of the decision sprint method? So the first thing to know about decision sprint is that there's a body of work when it comes to innovating or solving, you know, new meaningful problems in companies that I call upstream work. And so upstream work, you could know that by recognizing downstream work. Downstream work is execution. That's where the decisions have been made. And now it's more about making things happen. That's where teams begin to put in place project plans and tasks and milestones and things like that. But upstream work is just as an extensive a process. Often it lasts weeks and months. You know, you form a team. Uh, they might be trying to take a raw idea and mature it. And in that upstream process, they have to kind of wrestle with the unknowns and the knowns. They have to make sense of them. They have to draw conclusions. They have to put recommendations on the table. They have to get alignment in the organization. Once they that's achieved, then they have to spell out what specific decisions are, you know, need to be taken. And then they have to manage that decision making. They get the yes and the buy-in. Now they that decision point has been crossed. Now they're moving on to execution, which is what I call downstream. So upstream work is a thing. And the challenge is uh, it really doesn't have a label and it's very unstructured and it's often left to chance and personalities. So the first thing to know about decision sprint is that it actually distills upstream work into three phases and 13 workflows. So it makes things very transparent. What, what are the components of upstream work? How do you go from a bright idea where you just have you know, a ton of questions to making these questions actionable and get you on a path where you can get to you know, recommendations, alignment, and decisions? So that's the bot. That's where upstream uh, upstream work is. Then is what decision sprint solves for. It, it covers that end to end flow. And the process starts with problem statement, crafting the problem statement. Could you share with us an example from your career where it was challenging to craft the problem statement? Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know the. A pro- if people, first of all, taking a step back, if people interpret the problem statement differently, then they're going to solve for different things and come to different conclusions. Someone might say, oh, this is very doable and this is a great, great thing we should go ahead. And someone else could look at it and say, hey, this is, you know, not uh, something that's going to move the needle for our company. So let's find something else and they're not going to support it. So you have to, um, you know, start with clarifying the problem statement. So a quick example would be, let's say your Volvo, it's, you know, a number of years ago, sustainability is part of your mission and purpose as a company. That's more than just EVs. It's more than just, you know, producing, um, you know, uh, uh, electric cars. It's about a, a lot more, uh, including the interiors of the cars. So someone had the bright idea of vegan leather because, you know, cow-based leather, cows produce a lot of emissions. So what if you had vegan leather, you know, would that be something that's aligned with our mission around sustainability and also feasible? But, you know, that's just an idea, right? So it really depends what actions you pursue or not are a function of the problem statement. And if you think of the problem statement as essentially, you know, is this something that will, you know, uh, you know, customers will value and move the needle for the business? That's a very clear um, problem statement. Because now you can begin to look at it uh, and all the key considerations up underneath that, which include, you know, 
like what type of customers are we targeting how do we know that you know that they put a, a value on this do they see this as premium and then in terms of you know can it move the needle it's everything from you know the ability to get enough materials to produce that given that volvo produces a lot of cars right to deciding which car lines it goes into uh, and it also goes into supply chain matters like being able to trace the materials and and actually validate that they actually are really you know these these vegan ingredients right so um there's a lot of unknowns around that but if you you'll if you if you have a clear problem statement the reason why you want to start with that is because that helps you begin to source the key considerations and key questions you should be looking at which ones are most relevant and that's why Decision sprint always starts with you know clarifying uh, the the problem statement, and that kicks off everything else. Such a great example. Thank you for bringing it up. And so, what was the one line problem statement that you came up with at the end for this particular example? I, I don't have it off the top of my head, but yeah, it's probably something like you know, uh, I would crystallize it and say, um, you know, is vegan leather something that you know and um, you know, our target customers would value and and would it and the, would it move the needle for the business in the process thank you and if possible maybe we can continue with this example and you could take us through the method at least the key steps in the method so i know the next step is exploration sourcing questions i think it will be great for our listeners to see how the method is used in real life sure i'm delighted to do that I mean, the the big thing that you want to solve for is, as a pitfall is avoiding judgment before there's enough, you know, information to draw conclusions on. And so this is a big trap in teams. There's always a rush to judgment or solutioning. And so if you look at vegan leather or looking at curbside as a service model for McDonald's or uh, you know, MGM resorts and some of the things we we did there, like packaging, you know, hotel rooms with shows and and, and um, you know dinner and having all inclusive offers. You know, these are all they sound like bright ideas at, at a very minimum. Things that we should investigate and explore so that we can have a yes or no, um, because you don't want to be left behind when it comes to continually innovating. So that's why why you look at things uh, like these ideas. Now, the one of the first steps, the first step after you have a problem statement, is actually creating a period of time where you source questions. And this sounds maybe not terribly novel, but it actually is because you know usually once you have a kickoff meeting, right, everyone goes and starts to uh, collect a few facts and and then starts drawing opinions on like oh what's we should do this we shouldn't do this um but instead counterintuitively i'm suggesting that you allocate even just a few days to collect all the key questions that relate to this problem statement that you activate the team to independently suggest those questions so that there's not a group think and i believe that after even three or four days you will have a high quality question list that you can organize by subject matter where you have no answers and no conclusions and no recommendations, but you've canvassed, um, you know, a, a good amount of the unknowns here. And that is actually getting the first base in any, you know, and in, in turning a strategy into action. And un, the known unknowns is our job in companies. That's why we hired the talent that we have in companies. We need to get it. Uh, we need to activate the right minds to help us canvas the problem statement and these known unknowns. And we can do that in the form of a great question list. So that is actually the first first step. I know you're probably going to ask me about the <laughs> unknown unknowns. But the short answer on that one is that's impossible to know, and so it's not our job. If that happens, then we pivot. But no one has a crystal ball, and that's okay. That's not the job. But the known unknowns, we've got to canvas those. If we don't, shame on us. It'll be blind spots, and it'll be disruptive to the, you know, pursuing the idea later on. But if you had a great question list, 
essentially you've you know, essentially built an exploration, so to speak. Now you need to run the exploration, and that comes in the form of getting the you know the team to answer answer these key questions, have them reviewed by the right people. And if you build an exploration and run it, <clears throat> now you have a high quality fact base or some reasoning uh, to key questions through key questions, and you can use the content out of that to begin to draw conclusions and say what you know what conclusions would we draw here what recommendations do we think make sense and that process of building and running explorations and using it to draw conclusions you know it just takes probably you know two to three weeks but it actually helps us avoid so many pitfalls and speeds up things and what is great about the sourcing questions step in the process is that you can involve people who are knowledgeable but maybe skeptical. And as long as you do it in a neutral and objective way, they generally will be happy to participate. Yeah, Chris, I love that. <clears throat> I love that point because you know innovators will you know rightly sort of complain that you know there are too many skeptics in the organization and so we couldn't get the idea off the ground because people started to sort of, um, you know, undermine it. And uh, we need a way to neutralize this. So <laughs> the best way to neutralize this is to, yeah, make the questioning uh, and, and convert that into questions. Because questioning, you know, could be construed as skepticism where questions are pretty neutral. So, and the questions are valid it's just that if they come up, you know, once you have formed the recommendations and you didn't know about them, then they could sink your idea or ability to get buy-in. However, if you get them up front, you know, in this upstreaming process, then you can make them actionable and you can get to the bottom of them and say, well, A, you know, some of them, or maybe they, they don't carry as much weight as we thought, or maybe they do but we can think through how we're going to you know, approach them or integrate them into our recommendations. So when you get recommendations coming out of a period of weeks or months of a team collaborating, they need to be really sound and you need to be able to show how kind of, kind of the unknowns and these relevant questions were factored into how the team arrived at their recommendations. And so I want to help innovators avoid you know, uh, getting undermined and they can help themselves by actually embracing questions as long as they do it upstream. And another important point here is that it allows you to be much more inclusive around innovation. And then when people are involved in creating something, they are much more supportive and they feel they, they were part of creating it. So they have this sense of ownership. And then there's much higher chance that you will succeed with whatever you are implementing. 100%. There's nothing more gratifying than being in a decision meeting where you know, people are expecting some dissent, but then, you know, the people who you, know, you would expect it from are actually nodding their head in support. And it's because um, it's, it's because of this process, if you do it well, where they have the ability to provide input, they can see the connection between that input and what was concluded. And so, yes, they're, they feel valued, right? Their intellect was taken advantage of. So at some level, you know, a lot of dissent comes from the fact that, you know, people are in their roles for, for, for often good reasons. They know something, they want to provide that input, and they want that input to influence things. Now, that doesn't mean all input is great input, but you can talk that through when something, you know, doesn't have to carry a lot of weight. But certainly, if there was input and it was relevant, it should have been weighted in you know what you were recommending or proposing and you missed it then you're just not going to get you know those head nods and support around the room and so um this is the idea of inclusivity but in a non-bureaucratic way because we're not trying to say oh everybody sort of you know has a, <clears throat> a stamp on an idea even if that input wasn't you know the right input but if it was the right input you know, then it's really our job to obsess over getting that right input, doing it upstream so that when we get uh, closer to a decision point, that uh, it's really sound and we start getting a lot of kind of shared understanding and conviction around, hey, we want to do this. And then depending on 
how broad you go with sourcing questions, you can also tap into collective intelligence of the entire organization, or at least a very large part of it. And it can help you avoid some very silly mistakes that can be avoided because you may not know, for example, something that the frontline knows. Yes. And I think that this is one of the main pitfalls for innovative people is sometimes as innovators, we can see the promise of an idea and say, okay, well, we see the upside and we wait that a lot and we'll say, okay, well, the downside stuff, we'll figure it out later. Let's at least get started. And so <clears throat> a lot of times you find this frustration, you know, in teams that are good, for example, at prototyping and they're like, oh, don't you love my prototype, right? And it's like, of course, yeah, we love it. That's really powerful. But what you want to do along with your prototype is actually collect the hard questions and start to, and the only way to do that is by expanding your circle. So to your point, Chris, um, that input and obsession for inputs should not just be, you know, from the people who would, uh, you know, get it and be supportive of, you know, building new ideas, building against new ideas. But people who know something relevant to, you know, really getting making that idea actionable, just get those get those inputs up front so that you can understand and study them, evaluate them, explore them, and then integrate them into into what you're producing, either as your you know your recommendation, your strategic narrative, your prototype, all these um, all these deliverables. So I think that is one thing that innovators um, can do better is that just um, sort of expect that because the idea is you know, cool or uh, that, that everyone will get it. Not everybody is, you know, people uh, are, there are more practical people out there probably than innovators. And we need to kind of integrate that thinking into what we're, what we're putting on the table. And as humans, we learn well through stories. So maybe you remember some examples from Volvo of uh, some unexpected and surprising questions when you went through this process and also maybe of one or two questions that were absolutely vital to discover and were only discovered because of the sourcing the questions step. Well, what I can say about Volvo is, you know, one of the things I was responsible for is scaling up a Silicon Valley presence. So, I mean, at one point we did add a, a good number of people in Silicon Valley as part of uh, Volvo's sort of corporate um in a team. And so we have, you know, the corporate headquarters in Sweden and we have Silicon Valley and, you know, you're going to get a talent pool in Silicon Valley. Obviously that's very idea oriented, you know, people may be coming out of Waymo or Uber or something like that. And, um, you know, they really love the idea of, Hey, what's the future of cars, either the way the cars work or selling the cars. And so there's a lot of good ideation coming out of that. And um, having my feet in both worlds where I was responsible for that organization, but also, you know, a couple thousand people in Sweden as well who are working on, you know, more day-to-day uh, -day things, more operational things, you know, I, I had my foot in two camps. And so one of the things as a leader that, you know, I tried to do is whenever I, you know, I noticed that a team, let's say in Silicon Valley had a bright idea, but they just weren't tapping into the rest of the organization to make their idea better, you know, that was obviously something that could, you know, I was um, maybe uneasy, right? And it should make a leader uneasy. It's like if people are not tapping into, you know, the knowledge that we have here in our organization, then you kind of just kind of manually sort of suggest people, you know, convene and, and do a session and and say, let's have an input session. You know, what do you think? What could go wrong? Where, oh, what looks good? You know, like what happened we thought about? Um, who should we talk to? You know, those kinds of things. So I was doing it to answer your question, Chris, more sort of analog, right? Um, because again, until I had a time, uh, ability to step back from the C-suite, I couldn't document the workflows. Um, but I knew intuitively that that's, when we were at a stage where the Silicon Valley team maybe took it as far as they can, but it wasn't far enough around the exploration, I would make sure that they kind of did some some input sessions with other knowledgeable people in the company and really tapped that. And that always yielded a good result where the idea was better. Thank you, Atif. 100% understand. 
we are so incredibly busy. We have so many obligations. It's incredible that you've done the way you've done it, even if you did not have the the documented method yet. And thank you for taking the time to document it once you had an opportunity to do so. Let's go through now the remaining steps. And if you could share with us some examples, because I think it's much easier for our listeners to internalize the remaining steps, if there is an example. Sure. I mean, maybe uh, we talk a little bit about Amazon. And one of the things I was responsible for at Amazon was basically the the disruption you've seen in publishing, where there's authors are able to publish directly without you know, like a publishing house. And so, um, you know, certainly in the fiction category, fiction area, probably half of the bestsellers, um, you know, on a Kindle are from self-published authors where they keep a lot more of the royalties because they're sort of in charge. And so, you know, one of the ideas that came up was incentivizing, not requiring, but incentivizing authors to work exclusively with Amazon and then exchange giving them some benefits, higher royalties, but also some services. And so this idea of an exclusivity program was was the idea. Now, of course, we spent a lot of time, weeks and months exploring it. And now one of the things that after an exploration, I mentioned you build and run an exploration, starting with questions, making the questions actionable, you get to a point where now you're drawing conclusions, like what, what is the right answer? And um, the thing about conclusions is that conclusions are often very layered. There's not one conclusion you should be drawing after you've done an exploration. It's probably several. So it's not just, oh, this is a good idea, or this is a bad idea, or we should do this, or we shouldn't do this. And to illustrate it, this exclusivity program for authors who publish, you know, with Amazon, um, you know, some of the conclusions included the fact that, A, we thought, authors would be very enticed by it and be willing to do it and see it in their as something that's in their interest. Um, B, that the volume would be so high that there would be no way we could, for example, uh, monitor whether authors were staying exclusive versus like uh, publishing, you know, across other channels without automation. We needed an automated way to do content reviews. That was a second conclusion. A third conclusion was that uh, even though the authors were obligated to be exclusive, if they, um, you know, mistakenly or non-mistakenly sort of violated it, we would not be heavy-handed about enforcement. We would enforce, but we would sort of, um, sort of nudge them to correct any mistakes um, because you don't want a David versus Goliath scenario like in the press. So just in this example of an idea, it wasn't yes, no. It was, you know, they'll probably go forward where we'll need a good amount of automation to manage the volume and our enforcement policies should be, you know, we should be consistent, but we should be, you know, sort of assume positive intent and give people chances to, you know, fix things. Those are very layered conclusions. We're not just, it's, it's not a simple binary of yes or no. And the reason why drawing layered conclusions makes sense is because they streams very nicely to then the decisions or the actions that you take. Okay, well, now we need to start a team to build a system to automatically scan the internet and see if there are violations. Well, now we need a, a new team and we need technology and we need tools, so on and so forth. So it begins to inform the actions that you need to put into the project plan. Such a beautiful example. I'm actually running a summit for authors. I'm very familiar with what you guys created. It's such a gift for writers all over the world. Thank you for doing it. I'm actually running a summit called Author to Profit School Summit in October, exactly to help writers to be more successful and have a voice and be able to share their books. I love it. I, that's great. I'm, it's very gratifying to hear. And I know a lot of authors, you know, changed their lives. They made a living. Um, some of them have really amazing outsized, you know, sort of um, returns on it. Some of them got, you know, movie deals and TV show deals. So especially in the fiction area, it sort of um, unleashed a lot of creative energy that exists sort of in the population. So 
I think it turned out to be you know good for everybody. Of course, good for Amazon as well. And very good for readers as well. So for example, if you take a look at my company, we have released multiple books on Amazon and we published it through Amazon. We didn't have to go through all this uh, time-consuming route of working with a traditional publisher. And because of it, I'm getting messages all the time from people saying, I started a consulting firm based on reading your books. I got promoted. People are benefiting from all this work that is created by writers because of what Amazon created. So thank you for doing it. <laughs> You're welcome. There's definitely a lot of upside in it. And hopefully, you know, keep working on any of the downside and minimize that. Atif, so with the last few minutes we have, I wanted to ask you, so you built a large following on LinkedIn, about 500,000 followers, and your newsletter has over 100,000 subscribers. What were some most defining moments, maybe important defining moments that helped with the growth of your audience? Because I know that many of our listeners, they also want to be thought leaders. Maybe they're currently, most of them are currently still working for large organizations, but if you could share some tips and your experience of building your audience. Sure. Well, I um, started, you know, my LinkedIn writing a while ago. And I think one of the things um, that helped me was basically I was always writing as I was doing my my jobs. Um, and a lot of times I wrote in order to clarify what my job was. Um, so taking a step back, sometimes in leadership roles, People literally only do their internal job. Um, I did my internal job for sure. But on top of that, I always built in some periodic thought leadership. So I'd get out there, you know, speaking at conferences and events. And to me, that was not distracting from my job because when you have to explain things, you know, in, in a public setting or in like a podcast like this, then you need to get your thoughts together. So, um, and it can't be just like a, sort of a, a yawner, right? It has to be interesting for the audience. So when you are an executive and you have some public persona, you know, you're only going to get people who are in, interested if you're sharing kind of original thinking and sort of being a little bit on the frontier of something in the world, right? And you're trying to provide some thought leadership around that. So it, it actually forces you to think um you know at a you know in new ways and um I, I i've been doing that for a long time so that's one of the you know if you're doing that at events or conferences you might as well write a blog post right or um you know a more extended linkedin post or something like that and and that's really what starts things off is basically developing the ability to uh, look at some of the things you're working on and trying to learn yourself. And then once you get some, you know, some picture in your mind of what that looks like, uh, you know, sharing that with others, it benefits others. It also helps you better shape your ideas and then you do your job better uh, because you can explain it even internally. So I think that's one of the things that helped me a lot. And then, you know, people out there, you know, these feeds are very busy with a lot of a little bit of nonsense, right? It's like, okay, you had an offsite and you ate some cupcakes. Okay, that's not real meaningful <laughs> in the feed, in the LinkedIn feed. So you have to be sharing things that are kind of new and novel. What, what are you working on? What are you thinking about? How do you think about it? You put yourself out there, be a little bit vulnerable. And I think people, I mean, people enjoy that, that kind of content. Now, if you have a job with, uh, as an executive, you don't have all the time in the world, as you said, Chris. So you don't need to do that every week, right? But you, even if you did that, you know, once a month, that would be, I think, um, start to you start to probably uh, get a following. Um, so that's one of the things I recommend. This is such a great advice. I actually always tell clients that just because they're working for a large organization doesn't mean that they should not be also building their personal brand, their professional brand. One of the things that we do within Firms Consulting and strategytraining.com is we started publishing co-authored books with our clients. So we published second one this year. Actually, it was launched this week. And it is a book where I have a chapter and then multiple other clients also have a chapter. 
And that book actually coming back to a conversation about Amazon and the strength of Amazon, that book went to number one in three categories at the same time this week. So this is just an example of something you can do. You can also publish a chapter. You can publish a book. You can write on LinkedIn. There are so many. We live in this time when there are so many opportunities for us to share our thoughts, our knowledge, our experience to help people and also build our following. I love that example. I mean, I think teaming up with other people is is great. Um, and um, another thing I might mention is just you know picking a lane, picking a theme. So you know whether that's more around workplace and um, how people are treated to you know, something that's more, you know, technology, you want to talk about AI, you know, but pick a, pick a theme and, um, you know, and try and write with, within that lane because it gives people a sense for kind of where, you know, transformation or strategy, you know, like pick pick something where you can write a lot of interesting things because what's going to be on your mind like a month from now is going to be some new aspect of that. And I think that's a great way to, let people know what you stand for and you know where your ideas are happening. This is such a great advice to pick certain niche you're writing for niche market. And then later on you can expand, but it's good to limit the area you're focusing on so people know what to expect from you. Exactly. By the way, for everyone listening, if anyone interested to check out the book with the clients that was released this week, it's called how leaders get things done. Exactly the topic of, of our conversation as well today. How can we be more effective as leaders? Atif, I have one more question from you and I am looking forward to your answer because you are such a deep thinker. And it is my favorite question to ask at the end of the podcast. And it is, of the last few years, what were two, three aha moments, realizations that really changed the way you look at life or the way you look at business? Well, um, that's a great question. I mean, I think, um, you know, one phrase I use these days in, in, in smaller circles is net worth is not self-worth, you know, and um, I think that's an important thing, especially for young people, because, you know, young people, they look at, um, you know, athletes, they look at successful business people, uh, successful creative people, and, you know, and, I think sometimes, you know, the definition of success is not quite right. And people look at their, you know, mental health is a big issue in, the, in this day and age. And, you know, even for people who are, you know, not young, right? Like they can maybe measure themselves by, you know, the, by the dollar sign, which I think is, you know, doesn't serve um, anyone's purpose. And I really think that basically, how people carry themselves, um, you know, how other people uh, th think about those people, you know, how they've influenced others, um, how they've benefited others. I mean, those are, I think, the things that, you know, people will remember. I mean, because your title, the thing I like to say to people is basically don't be, don't wrap your identity in your title because your title will go away. Um, or you have to be like one of these executives who never wants to give up and just sort of just keeps grinding forever just because you're attached to the title. And, and that's really not a good way to live because then you don't really, you know, you haven't reconnected with the other aspects, aspects of your life and, and being human. So I think we need to liberate people a little bit um, and really see, you know, your worth is, is not a function of, you know, your title and climbing the ladder. And although you can, climb the ladder if you have that detachment you know i think i was always kind of wired that way where i didn't look at my worth as a function of you know <clears throat> climbing the ladder um but i think that's the advice i would uh i'm probably the main advice i would pass on the people especially younger younger people getting started in their careers thank you Atif. where listeners can find out more about you read your newsletter and so on buy your book yeah, so my book is Decision Sprint. I'm happy to share it's now a Wall Street Journal bestseller. And okay. so <laughs> if you punch in Decision Sprint, you know, you'll Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the bookstores, you know, you'll be able to get it there. Audible, if you want audiobooks. I used to work at Audible when I was uh, uh, when they were first getting off the ground. Um, so that's 
that's that. You can learn more about Decision Sprint on decisionsprint.com, which is my website that tells you a little bit more about the backstory and some of the interviews I've done related to the book, you know, like this one, which has been great. Um, on LinkedIn, you know, I operate a newsletter. It's called Re Rewire. So if you punch in Rewire and my name, you'll get uh, the ability to subscribe to this uh, newsletter. Um, and uh, of course, you can reach out to me over LinkedIn. I have a good following. Uh, I always love uh, interacting with people and more followership. And then finally, you know, I started a software company that actually brings a lot of these ideas to life through workflow plus AI, and it's called Ritual. So if you go to ritual.work, you know, you can learn more about that product for teams. Thank you, Tifarini. I appreciate you taking the time to be here. Thank you for documenting this method. Thank you for all the work you have done at Amazon for writers and for all the work you've done at all other companies to help people around the world to have a better life. I really appreciate the work you're doing. I appreciate that you're such a deep thinker. Chris, that's very kind of you to say. I really appreciate your support and your feedback. Um, as I didn't know you were uh, so familiar with the the writing world and the publishing, you know, self-publishing world. But it's great to see it's been beneficial for you and uh, your communities. Um, but most of all, thanks for this opportunity to share more about you know what what I'm working on these days. Really appreciated all your your awesome questions. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening in. Our guest today, again, has been Atif Rafik. Check out Atif's book. It's called The Decision Spring. And if you want to strengthen your strategy skills, get the overall approach. Houston well managed strategy studies. Free download we prepared for you. Go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. It is F-I-R-M-S consulting.com forward slash overall approach. Take care, and I look forward to connect with you at the next session. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.